inspiration, success stories, expert advice, strategies, new ideas, and amazing conversations. Everything you need to become a great speaker. This is Oscar Santolaya, and welcome to Time to Shine. Hello, and thanks for joining today. Sometimes we face challenging audiences and we don't know what to do. So we'll hear more about some ideas today from our new guest. New guest is Jamie Smart. He is a number one best-selling author, coach, and consultant. He shows individuals and organizations the unexpected keys to clarity, the ultimate leverage point for creating profound transformation and meaningful results. Jamie's primary focus is in showing transformation professionals and business leaders how to bring the principles behind clarity into their work with clients, into their own businesses, and into every aspect of their lives. In addition, he works with a handful of one-to-one coaching clients and leads selected corporate programs. Jamie's corporate clients range from an SME ranked as one of the Sunday Times 100 best small companies to work for, to a Fortune 500 business designated by Ethisphere as one of the world's most ethical companies. He has appeared on Sky TV and on the BBC, as well as in numerous publications, including The Times, The Daily Telegraph, The Huffington Post, and Psychologist magazines. He is also the author of the books Clarity, Clear Mind, Better Performance, Bigger Results, and The Little Book of Clarity. So let's welcome from Nottingham, UK, Jamie Smart. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Oscar. It's really, really good to be here with you. <laughs> It's a pleasure, Jamie. I'm very intrigued to hear more about challenging audiences, uh, your experiences, and what can you recommend us what to do. But tell us now a bit, uh, a bit about yourself. You are focused on clarity, as I see your coach. Um, How life brought you to, to this, to what you are doing today? Yeah, well, a little bit of background. So I, I grew up in Canada mm. and I moved to the UK when I was about 20 and I was working in the world of project management. So mm -hmm. doing organizational change programs and that sort of thing. And I was quite good at it, but it wasn't, I kind of had that feeling that I guess a lot of people understand, feeling like there's something you're here to do, but I didn't know what it was. And It just so happened I was I was really frightened of public speaking, uh, but I knew in my job I had to get better at it. So I started, you know, putting my hand up to do talks and that sort of thing. And and one weekend I went on a, a personal development course. I'd never really been on a course before, but I went on a two day personal development course in 1998. And the teacher came out at the beginning, but there were about a hundred people in the room, and the whole two days. It was just this really amazing mix of stories and facts and running us through exercises and this sort of thing. And I, I watched that and I was like, I want to do that. I want to be able to do that. And it was a problem because I was still really scared of public speaking. And so I started, basically, I handed in my notice at work a couple of weeks later and I started retraining to be a, a trainer and a coach and all this sort of stuff. And I learned NLP and became an NLP trainer and uh, really enjoyed doing that. And 10 years later, so that was 1998, 10 years later is 2008. And 
I was very successful, but I wasn't very happy and I couldn't figure out why because I was doing this stuff that was supposed to be, you know, the ultimate thing. And I was doing work I enjoyed and that sort of thing. And I went back to the drawing board and what I discovered was that basically I had, I hired a coach and I had three insights in the first few months of our work together. The first insight I had was uh, that everything I'd been looking for outside of myself is actually there on the inside. It's there within. And I'd heard this, you know, in like, all the great books and that sort of thing said, look within, but I didn't really know what it meant. I realized it for myself, Oscar. It's like, oh, everything you've been looking for outside you is actually there within you. Now, I'm not talking about like shoes and cars and stuff. I'm talking about the feelings of well-being and fulfillment and resilience and happiness and peace of mind. They're all there within. So that was a game changer for me personally. A month or two later, I had another insight and what I realized was, oh, the fact that a person can even see or hear or feel, the fact that a person can even listen to this interview means they have the source of well-being and resilience and mental health and creativity already there within them. And that was a game changer for me with my clients. Changed the way I work with clients like overnight. It was amazing to me as my impact went through the roof the moment I realized that. But then the third thing I saw this was all in uh, 2009, actually. Third thing I saw was, because I'd been exploring this stuff, the principles behind clarity for about six months at this point. And I'd been, you know, maybe like you, Oscar, I was always looking around, looking for, you know, new techniques or new approaches, different ways of thinking about how people change. So I had a real, like a big portfolio of different things that I'd studied and that I'd learned and that I brought to bear when I was working with clients, right? All of a sudden, I wake up one morning and I'm like, oh my God, this is principles for psychology. This is principles behind mental clarity. Principles like gravity is a principle. I, I realized, oh, this is to psychology what the discovery of germs was to medicine. So that was a game changer for me. I called up my office. I said, we're getting out of the NLP business. There's principles. And I changed direction. I did a complete 180, which was uh, <laughs> was news to my audience. Um, and that's what I've been doing ever since. That's what gave rise to my books, Clarity and the Sunday Times bestseller Results was my, my second big book. And that's what I teach people now because you know, you've probably heard the old saying that people have all the resources they need. Well, what I've seen is that that's actually true. And once you realize that that's true, it transforms the way you work with people. And, and it turns out that this also has big implications for dealing with challenging audiences, whether it's an audience of five million or an audience of one. Uh, I say an audience of five million because I uh, got an invitation to go on sky breaking news once it was going out live mm -hmm. to an audience of five and a half million people mm -hmm. that was a challenging audience for me even though i couldn't see them oscar yeah. it was challenging because it was it was so big but i've also had challenging audiences of one person and so uh so yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to exploring that with you yeah there's as you mentioned different type of challenging audiences uh, challenging moments like that how would you define a challenging audience well, I, I would say any audience is challenging if they don't feel connected to you and you don't feel connected mm -hmm. to them. 
Because if you're if you you've heard the old saying that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Mm. Well, there's something about that. The it seems to me that when you're on the same wavelength with your audience, when your audience know that you get them, when your audience feel connected to you, feel close to you, feel like you understand their world, then they're very interested to hear what you've got to say. And until they have that sense, they're much less interested. So so the funny thing is a challenging audience kind of is in the mind of the beholder. Like I'll tell you a little story. I one of the things I train a lot of coaches and a lot of therapists. Uh, one of the things I was saying, I often say to my groups is I don't have any resistant clients. And so one of my students was asking about that. They and they said, "Well, it doesn't make sense to me." And I said, "Well, I don't have any resistant clients because I don't give them anything to resist." And they kind of said, "Well, I don't still don't understand." So I said, "Would you like an example?" They said, "Yes, please." So we I did a role play one of the clients and I got them to role play a resistant client, someone who was pushing back on everything and that sort of thing. And I just kept asking questions and finding out what was going on for them until we fell into this state of connection. And then they spontaneously went, oh, yeah, you got me. I, I really want to hear what you're saying. And so then I turned to the other person. And I said, see, no resistant clients. And they said, yeah, but they were resisting you every step of the way until they mm. weren't. And I what I suddenly realized is, Oscar, I just don't experience it as resistance. I just experience it as as I'm still trying to find out about their world. And until I find out about their world, I wouldn't want them to take anything I say seriously. So I, I, how I think of it is, and again, this is whether it's with one person or a thousand people, I want to understand their world and show them that I understand their world so well that they would say, yeah, he gets it. He gets me. He understands me. Because if I can do that, then my my audience will want to hear what I've got to say. So I, the challenging audience is really anyone that you find challenging, any audience that you find challenging. doesn't matter how open they are or how nice they are or anything like that. If you find them challenging, then that's a challenging audience. And then the question becomes, okay, what is the difference between an audience that you find challenging and an audience you find easy to talk to. And what I'm going to suggest is that the difference between the challenging audience and the receptive audience mm -hmm. is in your own mind. Mm -hmm. Because that all the struggle, all the resistance, all the uh, difficulty comes from your own mind, not from the audience. So I can, I can give you a quick example of mm -hmm. this. Yep. I was... Uh, I was invited to do a talk to Regents University Business School in London. So they had uh, a class who I think it was, yeah, it was, they were like 21 years old. So a younger audience for me, I'm in my fifties there. Uh, it was the last day of, of school before the summer holidays. It was the last class of the day. And they all file in this auditorium to listen to some middle-aged guy talking to personal management. And so I knew to some degree, it would have its challenges anyway mm. that were inherent to the situation. So they're all sitting there. They're all looking at their phones and having side conversations. So I thought to myself, oh, you're going to have to work a little harder to get a connection with this audience. So actually, the first, probably the first half of my talk was mostly me just finding out where they were at and playing with my 
amplitude and volume and shockingness and that sort of thing just to get their attention and get them all into one group get them so everyone was had their attention on where i was trying to point it and and that would kind of be my my first tip would be meet people where they live so get a feel for their world you know i was i told them a story actually the the young people of, about a this is kind of a funny one i i was invited to speak to a group of 15 year old 14 to 19 year olds uh, 500 of them at a high school uh, near where i lived and like a 15 minute talk during school assembly and i sat there watching the teacher introduce you know go through the assembly and what i noticed is he was just talking at the students mm. they were talking to each other they weren't listening at all and what i realized was they their experience public speakers was sort of like a radio in the corner they didn't really have to listen to <laughs> And I thought, oh man, I, I need to get their attention. So I walked out onto the stage and I thought, meet people where they live. Mm -hmm. So I walked out onto the stage and I, I say to these 500 kids, say, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does a middle-aged man have to tell me that's going to be relevant to my life? <laughs> and half of them are kind of like, yeah. And I'm like, I get it. So then I was thinking about what was interesting to me when I was your age, when I was, you know, in the last years of high school, what was I thinking about? And I said, it was three things. Number one, it was about spending time with my friends and connecting and hanging out with my friends. Number two, it was about what am I going to do when I leave school? Number three, it was sex. So <laughs> they suddenly exploded. Like no one had said the word yeah. sex to in school assembly before. So they're like laughing. They're looking around at each other. They're going, did you hear what he said? And it, I said, were those the big three? And they, they're still like, because they're, they're used to a jukebox, right? They're not used to an actual person interacting with them. So I said, let me just check. This is yes. And I nodded my head. This is no. I shook my head. I said, are those still the big three? Uh, hanging out with your mates, what you're going to do when you leave school and sex? And they're like, yeah, those, those are pretty much it. <laughs> so I said to them, I said, okay, if I could show you a way that you can earn your living doing stuff that you enjoy and get decently paid for it. Show of hands, who'd be interested in that? 80% of the, mm. these kids suddenly put up their hand. I said, that's great. That's like 80% of you. And for the other 20%, there's jobs doing stuff you don't like for you guys. <laughs> so immediately, all the 80% are killing themselves laughing. And so I had them. I met them where they live. And... That's the only way I found, Oscar, to really connect with anyone. You know, the only difference between someone who's a challenging, unreceptive audience member and someone who's highly engaged is the person who's highly engaged knows that you get them, that you get their world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Go it's on. all about the connection, as you said. Um, yeah. Meet them where they live. One thing uh, I'd like to ask you is, when do you do this, I don't know, preparation assessment before the before going to speak or during the first seconds, minutes of when you are speaking? Uh, the answer is both. Mm -hmm. So sometimes if I go somewhere, so if I'm, if I'm booked to do a session, at the very least, I'll ask the organizer about it, okay, so that I get from the organizer. But if I, I'll also put myself in their shoes, I'll imagine it beforehand. I'll say, okay, well, if I was in their shoes, what would it be? Again, that's not going to give you perfect information, but it's a step in the right direction. Then when I get there, if I show up early, 
I'll ask people. So I, I had another example. I mm-hmm. <laughs> this is quite funny. I I, I was uh, invited to do to keynote. Um, the strategy meeting for the Council and Institute of Actuaries are kind of the the council that's responsible for all 30,000 actuaries around the world. So they kind of set the direction of the profession and how being an actuary is communicated to the world and talked about and that sort of thing. So I was invited to do a talk to them and I, I was excited about this. It, it was I was keynoting their strategy workshop and I was telling one of my clients about it. I said, I'm really looking forward to this. He goes, looking forward to it? They're going to eat you alive. Yeah. I said, what What do you mean? How come? He goes, have you ever met an actuary? I'm like, no, not really. He goes, they're super detail-oriented, super analytical, very evidence-based, super uh, skeptical. They're going to hate you. <laughs> I said, no, it's not. they're going to love me. It's going to be fine. He's like, good luck. They're going to kill you, man. So I I showed up and I just, I went around at, beforehand. We're having coffee before the talk. And I just spoke lot to lots of them, asking them, what do you want to get from this session? And they were telling me, what's it like to be an actuary? And they were, every single actuary told me that being an actuary is the best job in the world. As it, They said it was ranked as the best job in the world. I'm like, who ranked it? They said actuaries. Mm. They love doing it. So anyway, I start the talk and I get on stage. There's like 30 or 40 of them there. I said, now, I've been told that actuaries are very skeptical, detail-oriented, evidence-based, devil's advocate. Is that true? They're all, yes. I said, great. (laughs) Great. I said, so I've got a question for you. And here's my question. You're about to do a two-day strategy session setting the direction of your profession. And if you do a good job of it 20 years from now, the profession of being an actuary is going to be thriving. And if you do a bad job of it, 20 years from now, it'll have gone off a cliff. So here's my question for you. At the end of this session, two days from now, how are you going to know that it's a success? What are you going to see? What are you going to hear? What are you going to feel that's going to let you know that this has been two days well spent? I said, chat to each other, find out. So they come back to me 10 minutes later. And some of it was very, very practical. You know, we'll have an action plan and we'll have names and dates assigned to everything and all that sort of stuff. But the cool thing was some of it was very kind of touchy-feely stuff, which was the stuff they thought was impossible for actuaries. They're saying like, well, we'll actually, we'll have a nice feeling about it and we'll have had a laugh with each other and we'll have a good time and all that sort of stuff. And so it was a really good success. But again, just another way of meeting them where they live. And it, yeah, it went very, very well indeed. In, in fact, I've, I've got a recording of the whole talk that I put up on my website just because I know people like to listen to that because it's, uh, you can, it's one thing to be told a story about it, but it's another thing to actually hear it for yourself. So yeah, it was, my assertion is, it's actually really easy for, for people to come on a journey with you if you're willing to kind of pick them up where they are. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. Well, great example, especially this this last one that felt somehow intimidating. Even your colleague told you that yeah. it might be a failure. <laughs> um, from these experiences, which one do you think has been the most the most challenging? If you re- really felt at some point it this is challenging, and I have to. I'll tell you the one that felt the most challenging was Mm -hmm. actually, I got invited to go on Sky TV, so going out live to five Mm -hmm. and a half million people. And 
in the time before I went on air, so I was in the green room, I felt so uncomfortable. I was pacing up and down. I was sweating. I was super, super uncomfortable. I've never done it before. There's another guy in the green room, and it felt horrible, actually. Like I, w- I, I, I didn't, I wasn't enjoying waiting to go on air. So there's another guy in the green room, very, very experienced presenter. He says, uh, how are you doing? I said, not so good. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, nothing. <laughs> he said, why not? I said, well, I don't need to feel good right now. I'm in the green room talking to you. I need to be in a good space when I'm on air in 10 minutes or 20 minutes. He said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, I'm not. I said, your mind's a self-correcting system. As long as I don't monkey around with it, I trust that I'll have what I need when I'm on air. So he looked skeptically at me and goes, Mm. good luck with that, pal. So 10 minutes later, the runner comes, gets me, takes me on air. I sat down in the chair and my head cleared and I went for it. And it went, went really, really well. But it was really, really uncomfortable beforehand. But the the thing that it really taught me is that if you understand the self-correcting nature of your mind, you can rely on it. You don't have to use techniques or uh, anchoring or any of that kind of stuff. Your mind is a self-correcting system. You know, there's a a related story that the the runner whose name evades me at the moment, it'll come back to me at a moment, but he was certainly a couple of years ago, he was the fastest uh, fastest man on earth. And um, at the beginning of a race, all the other runners are doing Usain Bolt, that's his yep. name. All the other runners are doing pre race routines, you know, visualization and rituals and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, he's just talking to the audience and high fiving them and having fun. And someone asked him, How come you're not preparing better? Why aren't you, you know, doing pre race routines? Why are you having a laugh with the audience? He said, I found that if I think about a race too much, I don't run so well. And that's what I've found. If I think about a talk too much, I don't talk so good. I don't do my best talks if I'm preoccupied with the talk. I find the best thing I've got for finding a connection with my audience and being spontaneous and having a good experience with them is having that freedom of mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but it feels like most of the people don't act like that. So most people will need something to get um, to calm the nerves or be ready well yes and no i'm not sure that that's true i think it looks like that's true but what what i felt like everyone can think of examples when they've found themselves in a good state without having to prepare for it and in fact i'd even go further i'd say the often the most profound connected high performance states we find ourselves in they're a matter of luck rather than preparation i'm not saying don't prepare for a talk or whatever i'm i'm talking about preparing uh psychologically i don't uh, it looks to me like actually the best performances come when people have got nothing on their mind and you'll you know you'll find this oscar i probably find this yourself is if you ask someone who's a nervous public speaker What's going through your head when you're on stage? They'll say, oh, I'm thinking about what if I forget my lines? Are people liking what I'm saying? Uh, does my hair look stupid? They, they've got a lot on their mind. If you got someone who's a very comfortable public speaker, you ask them, what are you thinking about when you're on stage? They're like, nothing really. Not much, you know. I'm p- paying attention to the audience. Mm, maybe think about is, what's the next point I want to make. They've got 
very little on their mind. And I know the audience members who are listening to this, who are experienced and comfortable public speakers are going to agree with me on that, that when you've got nothing on your mind, that's when you give your best performance. And I'm going to suggest there's nothing you can do to clear your mind. Actually, your mind is a self-clearing system. Anything we try to do to clear it actually shakes it up. The only thing I've found that can give you a clear mind more and more reliably is an understanding of the principles behind how your mind clears automatically. That's what I refer to as the principles behind clarity. Mm -hmm. And could you tell a a bit about that? Sure. Um, So the principles behind clarity are just a way of describing the natural capacity that every human being has for mental clarity, peace of mind, creativity, resilience, learning, love, and connection. It's, a, it's an innate capacity, so it's built in. We're born with it. You, know, you, you can see this in little children. They have a natural capacity for learning, natural capacity for motivation. They're very resilient. They're very lighthearted. It's built in. And then what happens is as we get educated and socialized, more and more beliefs and concepts and ideas get put in the way of that innate capacity. But that innate capacity is there. So when I talk about the experience of connection, that feeling when you're really, if you're in an audience and you're really being touched by a speaker or the audience is really in connection with the speaker, that's not something that the speaker or the audience are doing. It's an absence of interference. It's an absence of thinking. It's an absence of doing anything. Mm -hmm. The way I talk about it, Oscar, is we've got this innate capacity for clarity, resilience, and well-being. And the only thing that ever gets in the way of it is what I call contaminated thinking. And contaminated thinking comes from, I'll give you a really simple example. I was coaching someone in front of a group once. So I love coaching people in front of an audience. So I'm coaching this person. I said, well, what, what's going on? She goes, well, I'm due to give a TED talk in three weeks. Okay. And I said, okay. And she goes, I'm super, super nervous about it. I said, uh, uh-huh. And she goes, why? I don't want to be nervous when I do the talk. And I said, well, why would you be nervous when I do the talk? And she said, well, I'm nervous now. I said, yeah, well, the issue isn't that you feel nervous now. She said, it's not. I said, no, the issue is you believe those feelings have something to do with the talk. She said, they do. I said, no, they don't. I said, the talk doesn't even exist. The talk is in three weeks' time. Explain to me how the feelings are getting three weeks back from the future to you now. She was making it up in her own head and then pretending that it was coming from a talk. Now, this is a natural thing for us to do. I'll give you a really simple example of it, Oscar. I was working with a client, and he was experiencing a lot of stress and pressure. And I said to him, uh, have you ever had that experience where you're in your house and you catch sight of something and you think it's an intruder, but it's actually like a clothes stand or a, a coat rack or something? He said, yeah, I, I had that the other day. I saw a coat rack and I thought it was, I thought it was an intruder, but it's actually a coat rack. I said, okay, when you thought it was an intruder, being freaked out was appropriate. That's the right response. I said, but what happened when you realized it was a coat rack? He said, well, suddenly I felt just calm and relief and peaceful. I said, great. How did you do that? He said, well, I didn't. It just happened. Mm-hmm. What happened? He realized that it was a coat rack. When he thought it was an intruder, he was hallucinating. It was an illusion. 
Okay, it, there was never an intruder. It was always a coat rack. So we have this capacity for realization to to bring our perceptions more closely into alignment with reality. That's what happened for that guy. Well, the issue with the speaker was she was getting freaked out, and she believed it was coming from a talk. But it can't have been coming from a talk because the talk was in the future. It didn't exist. So it, it was coming from her mind, but she thought it was coming from the future. And so she was freaking out. The moment she saw through that, she fell into the moment, and the stress fell away, and then she was able to do the talk. And this is one of the when I'm working with people around public speaking, this is one of the things I point them to. And, it, and it's, it takes some humility, Oscar. If we're nervous about some future event, it takes some humility to honestly say, wow, I am being tricked by my own perception. It's a trick of the mind. And we, we don't know that. And so we act as though these future hallucinations are real. That's what, and, and here's the thing. So when I was getting ready to go on Sky TV, I knew that like I was freaking out because it did seem, it did seem like my freak out was coming from being on TV in 20 minutes time or whatever. But I knew that wasn't possible. It couldn't be coming from that because I wasn't on TV. I was in the green room. I knew I must be hallucinating. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was still kind of freaking out, but I didn't have to do anything about it. And that gave my system time to give me exactly what I needed when I went on air. It was a difficult interview, you know? It was, I had five minutes to point people to a fundamental shift, a, a new understanding of how psychology works. Uh, it wasn't easy. And so I needed to be at the top of my game when I went on air. And I knew the best thing you got going for you is being present and in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Could you now s summarize what would be your best piece of advice for dealing with a what, what we call challenging audience now that you describe this? Yeah, I, I, I give two related pieces of advice. The first would be listen, like get their world. The more you're able to understand their world, the better your chances of communicating them with effectively. But the second thing I'd say is people pick up on where you're coming from. They can feel where you're coming from. So if you're coming from a good feeling, they're going to pick up on that. Whereas if you're feeling stressed or combative or angry or freaked out or bothered, they'll pick up on that. So the best thing you got going for you with a challenging audience is to know that the feeling of challenge is coming from within you. And the less you get kind of carried away with that, the more you're going to be able to come from somewhere good that your audience will pick up on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Very, very good tips, absolutely. And, and also your, your stories um, illustrate very well what you're, you were saying. Thank you. Could you now share with us what is your favorite quotation? You know what? I was thinking about that, Oscar. I don't have a favorite quotation, but I've got the one I'm enjoying at the moment. And this is uh, by a guy called Mark Weiser. And he said, the most profound technologies are those that disappear. They weave themselves into the fabric of everyday life into the, until they are indistinguishable from it. And I was thinking about that with relation to, you know, things like our phones and that sort of thing, but also in relation to internet and electricity, but also in relation to things like money. You know, money has woven itself into the fabric of our reality so fully 
but we don't see it as a technology anymore. We think it's part of reality. And it's what makes it one of the most misunderstood substances on the planet. So I'm really enjoying that that quote. I'll read it again. The most profound technologies are those that disappear. They weave themselves into the fabric of everyday life until they're indistinguishable from it. And the, the other reason that I like that quote in relation to what we're discussing, when I first had those insights that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, seeing, oh, everything you've been looking for outside of you is coming from within you. And people have that innate source of mental clarity and well-being and peace and resilience already there within them. And, oh, wow, this is principles for psychology. At the time, those looked like these game-changing technologies just to understand how that worked, looked like a profound technology. But over the last 10 years, I've been integrating that and learning it and seeing it so fully that it's become kind of invisible to me. And now it just kind of shows up automatically. And so I wanted to, I wanted to just say that for anyone listening to this, we each have that innate capacity for insight and realization that can align our perceptions more closely with reality. And as you do, it's amazing what it can do for your public speaking and your ability to connect with an audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, very it's a very good quote makes a lot of reflection about that and very very relevant for what we are talking about what about one book that you can recommend us to read gosh there are so many books that i love one of my favorite ones at the moment is called the discovery of the germ by john waller but i know no one will read it so i'm not going to recommend that one the book that i've read that has had a really really profound impact on me personally is funny actually i first read this book 20 years ago and i thought it was absolute rubbish mm. and i read it again five years later and i still thought it was rubbish i thought i know all that and it's it's not. and now it's one of my favorite books so i thought that'd be a great book to recommend the book is called the missing link it's very short you can read it in 15 minutes mm. it's by a guy called sydney banks and it's uh I have had some of the most profound and life-changing realizations that make a real difference in my everyday life while reading that book. So yeah, that would get my top recommendation, The Missing Link by Sidney Banks. Mm, interesting. Haven't read about that. And finally, please leave us with a practical piece of advice, what we call a routine to shine. So I was thinking about that one too, because I... I don't tend to use particular practices and routines, but the number one piece of advice I could give is, you know, if I work with a lot of people, Oscar, you know, my thing about listen and find out uh, where the other person is coming from, kind of get their world. Well, what I found over the years is everyone rates themselves as a pretty good listener, like an eight or a nine out of 10, but, but most people are actually terrible listeners. <laughs> terrible listeners and i can i have i have we got time for a very quick story that'll demonstrate this sure. so i used to be an nlp trainer and so i could track people's body language and language patterns and all this stuff and i was being coached by someone one day and he said i you know i don't know how to say this but you could really do with an upgrade in your listening abilities And I was, I was like, oh, he doesn't realize that I'm a ninja listener, that I'm, I can play back everything he's just said. 
with all the same voice inflections and everything. I thought, boy, he's got a surprise coming. So I said, well, tell me more. What do you mean by I could do it with an upgrade in my listening? He said, well, I don't really know how to put it. He said, but it seems like when you're listening to me, you've got a lot on your mind. It's like you're thinking about a lot while you're listening to me. Well, I had to put my hands up to that. I was. I was. So he said, I want you to I want you to experiment with a different way of listening. It's the way you used to listen before you knew what listening was. It's the way you used to listen before you had concepts and beliefs and ideas. And when you were a kid, you used to listen just to just to be impacted by the world, just to have an experience of the world. He said, so I want you to experiment with listening to people to kind of have an experience of who they are. You don't have to be busy thinking about what you're going to say next or anything like that. Just listen to people to get hit by who they are. So I started experimenting with it and it was amazing. I started feeling so connected to the people I listened to. I thought, wow, if you can listen to your clients like that, you could listen to life like that. And it's a very different way of engaging with people. And I find it's a really incredible way of engaging with an audience. If you listen as deeply as you possibly can without having to think about it. So that would be a practice uh, to shine. That would be a way to, you know, you, you really listen to people, man, people are going to lean in. Yeah, it's, it's really a good one. Very, very good uh, piece of advice. Um, thanks a lot, uh, Jamie, for, for talking with me in this, uh, in this conversation. And great, uh, great stories, great reflection about the, this topic, about challenging audiences, what we can do. And mm. I get a bit intrigued about uh, the clarity. I would like to hear more and maybe read more your book. So please tell us how we can find more information about what, what you do. So you can find everything about me and my work at jamiesmart.com. That's J-A-M-I-E-S-M-A-R-T.com. My books are on Amazon, Clarity Results, the little book of Clarity, the little book of Results. And you can find me in most of the social media places. My hashtag, my handle is jamiesmart.com. So same as the website, but without the dot. So I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the usual places. Okay, fabulous. Thanks again, James, uh, Jamie, and all the best. Lovely to, lovely to speak with you, Oscar. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Did you like it? Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or visit us at timetoshinepodcast.com. Until next time...